Well, if you don't remember anything else this morning, remember the fact that God loves you. And uh, there's not a person sitting here this morning that deserves that. There's not any of us that can understand it. All we can do is appreciate it and value it and thank God for it. This morning is Easter. I, I, I'm grateful that you've chosen to be with us this day. Normally on Easter you talk about the tomb and the empty tomb, but this morning we're not going to go there. And we're going to go there, but not for a long period of time. Because you see, I think that in the Bible, one of the things that's very, very important is that you balance knowledge with understanding. Most of us know the story of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that story. But if you don't understand why that story is important, you miss a very big part of the Easter story. So this morning, rather than looking at spending a majority of our time talking about the, the empty tomb, which was incredible, I want us to spend a little time this morning understanding why an empty tomb is necessary and what value it has to us today. So this morning we're going back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and uh, original creation, God, uh, the world as God intended it. So Genesis chapter 3, here's what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. At this point in the world, God has created the world in seven days. He has placed Adam in it. Adam has named the animals. He has then taken and given him Eve. They were married. God has them in this perfect world. Sin has not entered into picture. You have Adam and Eve together as one. You have them fellowshipping with God. You have them enjoying his creation. It was an incredible world. And so in that incredible world, Satan comes along, and notice what it says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Now, God had never said that, but Eve added to it at that point, or you will die. Satan then says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there's some truth to that. Because up until this point, Adam and Eve did not know anything about evil. And so notice what happened. When a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desiring, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, guys, you might want to blame the woman for this, but he was standing right there. And he didn't say anything. And he just went, okay. It's interesting, the Bible, when the New Testament talks about this, it says that the woman was deceived, but the man made a choice. So it goes on to say this. She gave some to her husband he, with her. He ate it. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and wife, and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, up until this point, there was no reason to hide. They had nothing to be ashamed of. But now, 
that sin in their picture, they're afraid of God and they're hiding from God. They're trying to cover up. That's what sin does. And notice what it goes on to say. But the Lord called the man, where are you? Now this isn't like God lost his first man. It's like, you know, okay, I've created the world and oh no, where's Adam? I've lost him. No, he wanted Adam to know where Adam was. And notice what happened. And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, that's the first time he knew he was. It's the first time he had ever been afraid. It's the first time he realized he was naked. It's the first time that he had ever hidden from God. Sin had really messed stuff up between him and God. And notice what it goes on to say. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, yes, it was all me. No. He does what every good husband does. He says, the woman that you gave me, her problem, not mine. The woman that you gave me, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, now this is important. Now what God does now is he's confronted Adam. Adam shifted it to Eve. Eve shifted to the serpent. And here's how God deals with it. God's going to deal with the serpent, then he's going to deal with Eve, he's going to deal with Adam. He's going to go right back, and everybody's going to have to take individual responsibility for what they've done. And that's a good Bible principle. Okay, And notice what he says. He says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust the days of your life. We actually believe that up until this point, serpents, snakes, may have been upright. But part of the curse is they're going to crawl now. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And this is the Easter story. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. That's the Easter story all the way back in the beginning of time. He looks at Satan and he says, you're going, to do, you're going to bruise the heel, or you're going to strike the heel of Jesus. But he's going to crush your head one day. All the way back in Genesis. And then notice what happens. The story goes on. <clears throat> and he says, in the next phrase, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, Eve, and clothed them. So now, notice this, something has to die. So, for the first time now that we have knowledge of this ever spoken of in Scripture, an animal dies. For why? For To clothe, to cover Adam and Eve. And it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. A lot of Bible scholars believe that had Adam and Eve eaten of the tree of life at that point, they would have been condemned forever in their sin. But God says, I need to protect them from this. By the way, when you read your Bible, you will find the tree of life happens again in the book of Revelation in heaven. That's where you'll see it again. Until this point, it is in the garden. And he says, I've got to protect him. So he banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So now they're banned from the garden. And as you go through it all, God basically deals with the sin of each one of them. The serpent crawls on the ground. The serpent's head would be crushed. He would bruise the heel of Jesus. 
Adam, his, the consequences of his sin are the ground would become hard. I spent some time in my garden this, this week pulling weeds. The whole time I was cussing Adam, going, you know what? Because in the garden, that's not the way it was. But yet, because of sin, now we have weeds, and we have to work the ground, and we have to till it, and we have to do all those things. Women, one of the results of the fall, for you, pain and childbirth. Apparently, when God designed childbirth, it was not a painful process. But part of the result of the fall is that. And there's an issue of a relationship, an authority kind of thing, between a husband and a wife that's a result of the fall. God, that's not how God originally intended it. That's not how God originally wanted it, but it's a result of, of the fall. And so you see all of these things that come into play. Now, that's, we, we learn a lot in this story about a lot of these things that, that are important to us. We learn some lessons about God. God created a perfect world, a world without sin, perfect in every single way. He established marriage. He established relationship. He had an open, honest policy with Adam and Eve. It was, it was, it was, a, it was an incredible world to live in. And yet, God also created man with a choice. And God said, you know what? I don't want a, a, create, a, a, cre- a creation that simply just d- follows me because it has to. I want a creature. I want a, I want a created being that chooses to love me, that chooses to follow me. And by nature, if you have a choice to follow, you also have a choice to reject. And so he put inherent within mankind the ability to choose. And Satan comes into the picture. Satan always wants to mar what God establishes. And so Satan comes in, and the Bible tells us some characteristics about Satan. Satan's primary goals are threefold. Steal, kill, and destroy. That's all he cares about in your life. Don't for a second believe that Satan's goal in your life is to make you happy. That's what he told Eve. That's what he told Adam. Oh, it'll be so much better this way. And it wasn't. It wasn't. Why? Because they stole, he stole the relationship that they had with God. He killed that environment that, that God had created for them. He destroyed Adam and Eve's world. And they were now cast out. Why? Because that's Satan's goal in your life and mine. That's all he cares about. So if he can get you to th- not think about God and not deal with your Christian walk and not deal with the Bible and all that, he's thrilled. He has, he's not your friend. Understand that. But he appears that way. And so because sin came into the picture, God now has to deal with mankind, and he has to deal with sin. Now that sin's entered the world, it's a whole different world. Satan now takes control of this place. Satan now is the principality, as the New Testament says, the principality of the air. His goal is to mar this creation and, his, and God's cre- creatures in any way possible. And so that's what he tries to do. Man who once had incredible fellowship with God, is now cast out. And all of a sudden, for the first time, man and God are separated. And that's how the story starts. But God makes a promise all the way back in creation. He says this, there's coming a day when Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And so we have to wait a long time for that day to come. So God basically, way back in creation, said, you know what, I'm going to provide a way to make this right again. God spends the entire Old Testament teaching his people that I'm holy, and if you 
are going to try to be like me, you will fall short every single time. He establishes laws and commandments, and man tries his best and fails and tries his best and fails, and God uses that to teach mankind something about him, that God is absolutely holy and that sin cannot abide in his presence. That's why Adam and Eve hid. That's why God takes them outside of the garden. But God created man for fellowship. He wants a relationship with him. And yet sin stood between God and his creation. So what happens? So in that story, Jesus comes into the picture. Listen to Galatians chapter 4. Here's what it says. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. That's the Christmas story. When the time was right, you can study history and you can find that when Jesus Christ appears on scene, it was a perfect time in history. And notice what it goes on to say. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. In other words, we could try to clean ourselves up, we could try to do everything we could, but it just didn't work. So he sent Jesus, and notice what it says, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. And he goes on to say this, Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has also made you his heir. And he tells us that what happens is Jesus came onto the scene and Jesus lived a perfect life on this world in order to pay for our sins. He goes to the cross, sinless, perfect. He dies in our place. And at that moment, Satan thought he had won, when in reality all he had done is bruise the heel of, of Jesus. And then Jesus Christ comes out of that tomb on that resurrection morning and crushes the head of Satan. A number of months ago, I tried to illustrate another principle, and the illustration ended up being a whole lot more effective than I thought. And I had people who weren't here who heard about it and who asked me, and so I, I, I just, in going through the message this morning, I thought, you know what, there's nothing better that illustrates this, so I'm going to pull out an old illustration and do it again to make my point, okay? Because I, I think it needs to be made, and I think this is an effective way to tell the story. The Bible teaches that what happened was that because sin entered the world, we are all sinners. So um, I'm going to illustrate it this way. Now, before you get, some of you are going to get really upset with me. Get over it, all right? You know by now, I will do whatever it takes to illustrate a point. This looks like a good coat, but it's not. So just trust me here, all right? I want this coat to illustrate the fact that when we are born, we are born without a lot of stuff, okay? We're pretty dependent upon mom and dad. This actually is a coat that I got at Goodwill. It has some spots on it, um, and, and, and it's going to have a few more when I'm done. So let's let the coat illustrate the fact that I'm a child, I'm, I'm, I'm born... Even a child is innocent and cute and everything else as they are. We know that even a child cries out when it doesn't need to cry out. And as they start to grow up, no one has to teach the child to be selfish, correct? Did you ever sit down with your children and say, now, let me show you how to be selfish in front of your brother or sister. Let me show you that when there's a group of children around, 
and there's and, and your favorite toy is there. Let me show you how to take that toy away for yourself. No. Why? Because by nature, children are that way. So I'm going to let the marker represent sin. So what happens as a child, you tell them to play nicely with their brother or sister and not hit them, and what do they do? They hit them. And then you say, okay, I want you to go in and I want you to pick up your clothes. I want you to clean up your room. And they come in to you and they look at you and they say, yes, I cleaned up my room. And you go in and you open the closet or you look under the bed and they have not. So they lied to you, didn't they? And so as your child goes on and then as they go to school, it gets even worse. And they do more and more, become more and more and more selfish, don't they? By the way, children, don't do this to your clothes, okay? Uh, Otherwise, it's sin. Uh, don't do that. You want to take care of your stuff. So what happens is, and, that, and so you go through life as a child, and you make bad decisions, and you lie to mom and dad once in a while, and so you do stuff like that. And then as you get older and you get into school, you get better at it. And you become more selfish, and you become more self-centered. And you try to tell the truth, but what happens? Often a child, backed into a corner, they lie. They maybe even cheat. They've got an assignment done, and they tell the teacher, yes, I did it, and really they didn't. And they start to tell you things that, oh, no, no, Mom, I turned in that paper. Wrong. My, wife's a, my wife teaches five-year-olds. Five-year-olds do this. Did you give that note to your mom? Yes. No. But that's what they do. Why? Because we are sinners by nature. And so then, as you continue on, you get into the junior high years, and you get much better at stuff like this. Because then it's like, okay, I don't want you to, do, I don't want you to be hanging with that person. Oh, I won't. Then you get to be high school. Now we're talking. <laughs> Curfew is, I need you to be in at such and such a time. And... Not be with so-and-so. Okay, I won't. And you are what? You are with so-and-so. And you lie to mom and dad. And then you start doing the whole cheating thing. And you start, you start, and then you go to college. And then, in college, you start hanging with the wrong people. And you start making bad decisions. And you start doing things that end up really... Oh, I've got to be careful because I did this once. I got stuff on me. And you start, you start making decisions that end up with some serious consequences. You think, look, I'm in, I'm in, high school, I'm in college now. I can go ahead and drink even though I'm not 21. Until you get an MIP. And you get caught. And all of a sudden you find out that there are consequences that are going to... Follow me for a very long time now. Or in some situations, you make a really, really bad decision. And it really, really marks your life forever. Now here's the thing. You know what a lot of people do? They go through life doing this. And they go through life... Um, I know you guys don't like this in the front, but I kind of like the smell of this stuff. Um... <laughs> You, you go through and you start, as you go through life, making bad choices. And we call this sin. And this is what happens in our lives. And then you decide that, you know what? 
I'm just not that bad. Because you know what you do? You compare your jacket to the person next to you. And you always find somebody whose jacket is worse than yours. Okay, you don't go, look, I'm not as bad as Mother Teresa. You know, you don't compare yourself to those people. You compare yourself to the other people. And so you're constantly comparing yourself. You're going, I'm not that bad. And then some of you start to feel guilty because your coat's pretty marked up. So you start to say, you know what? I can do some things. Anybody know what these are? I live with these. I, there's one of these within my reach just about all the time. I have them in my office. I have them in a car. I have them when I travel. I have them everywhere. They're Tide pins. So that means when you're eating and you get a spot on your coat or your tie or whatever else, you go like this to clean it off. And here's what you do. You decide that there's some things you can do in your life to try to clean it up. So you spend a lot of time trying to clean up these marks. You know what? I can give you this coat for a month. You can work eight hours a day on it every day trying to get all these marks off, and it's not going to happen. Why? You can't clean it up. You can't clean it up. And so here's what happens. We go all the way through life getting marked up like this. Sin is what we call it. And here's the question. You take your last breath, your heart beats for its last time, and you stand before God like this. What's he going to say? You know what? Your coat's not that bad. Come on in. No. The whole Old Testament is filled with the ideas God can't tolerate any sin. One mark is enough to go, can't do it. So what are you going to do? See, that's the, that's the issue with all of us. And there's all kinds of people who say, well, just clean up the coat. I, come on. Really? Really? Well, you know, just do this or just do that. You know, if, if like you go to church and then if you like give them a lot of money and then, you know what? I, I tell you what, you know, if you jump through these seven hoops, then you'll be okay. Let me tell you something. It is what it is. And you and I have to stand before God like this. But you see, here's what happens. Galatians chapter 4 says, In the fullness of time, God came to the earth. Now, that's us. Let's talk about God for a minute. Jesus Christ comes in the form of God. He is God. So I want to let this thing, this robe, represent Jesus. This is a robe representing Christ. So God comes from heaven. The Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He comes from heaven in his righteousness, and he decides to wrap himself in human flesh so he looks like a human and be surrounded by everything humans are surrounded by. So from an early age, Satan comes along and tries to get him to take something from that neighborhood child. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. And as he's growing up and he's doing business with people, they try to get him to maybe hold back some of the change instead of giving him the right amount of change, take a little bit. Change the measurements a little bit. No, Jesus isn't going to do that. In fact, he comes to a point where Satan spends 40 days doing nothing but tempting him, trying to get him to take a shortcut, to do all these things. And in every instant, for 33 years, Jesus walks on this earth and is not touched and never, ever chooses sin one time. Never. Not one bad thought, 
Not one selfish concept, not one selfish idea, not one lustful look, nothing. Every time he's faced with a choice, he chooses to honor his Father and God, and he chooses right. And Satan, who has watched this thing, finally comes to his host and says, you know what, well, you got to get rid of this guy. It's too much. we got to get rid of him. So they get a bunch of people to go against Jesus Christ. Even Rome, as horrible, those of you who have been with us, and we've been going through 1 Peter, and we've been talking about the Roman culture and the Roman government. Even Rome looked at Jesus' life and says, we don't see anything wrong with him. Even Rome. And they look at him and they find nothing. And finally they decide, we're going to take it, we're, we're going to crucify him. And Satan feels like he is one. Now here's what's interesting. The Bible says the only reason we die is because of sin. So why does Jesus die? He doesn't have to. He's sinless. He has never sinned. For the wages of sin is death. He's never sinned. You see, that's why it's so important to understand that in the, in the crucifixion story, he willingly gives his life. He willingly goes to the cross. At any moment, he could have said, I'm done. I don't want to do this. It's too hard. And no time does he say that. He willingly dies on the cross. Even the thieves hang with him on the other side of the cross and realize, look, he's different from us. And so he goes to the cross. And I'm sure Satan and his host were thrilled that night. We've won. He's dead. We're done with him. It's over. No more. And I'm sure they were thrilled. But what they didn't realize is what had happened at that moment. You see, at that moment, here's what happened. Jesus, if you will, took off his righteousness. And he said, you know what? They can never be like this. They can never clean up the coat. So here's what I'll do. I will offer a trade. I will take their coat on me. The Bible says it this way. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he said, and I'll take your coat, 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 and I'll take your coat. And he took the sins of the world, and he put on every single one of those coats. Every one of them, for all of eternity. He put them all on himself. And the Bible says that at that moment, God the Father, looking on God the Son, covered with our sins, turns away, and Christ cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he can't look at him anymore. He can't look at his own son anymore because his son has your sin and mine on him. And Jesus hangs there on the cross and finally he cries out to tell us die. It's finished. I've done what's been asked of me. And he says, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. I'm, I, Lord, I'm now giving my life up for you. And at that moment, he had taken all of our sin upon himself. Now, remember back at the beginning when I said you've got to understand? You've got to understand the beginning? You see, God had to judge sin. And God did judge sin. In the garden, he had to remove Adam and Eve. His judgment meant Jesus went to the cross. But his love said, I'm going to offer it to everyone. Here's the thing. He paid for it. 
He took your sin upon him at the cross. And when he walked out of that tomb, he crushed the head of Satan because Satan realized he didn't have power over life and death. He realized at that moment that the worst thing that could happen is that Jesus lives. Because now he lives in the hearts of those who choose to accept his righteousness. You say, okay, I don't get it, preacher. All right, I've still got my sin. Are you saying then that my sin's all through and we're all going to heaven? No, no, no. Remember what I said at the beginning about Genesis chapter 3? God created us with the ability to choose. You still have to choose. You still have to make a decision. Do you want to stand before God like this, even though your sin's been paid for? Because if you do, guess what? You can't be with him. But if on the other hand, I can look at my life and go, God, I realize I'm a sinner and I messed this thing up. But I realize that you paid for my sin on the cross and that your righteousness is freely offered to anyone who wants it. So God, as best as I know how, I want you to come into my heart and life. I want to be your son. I want to be your child. I want my life to be about you, not about me. God, I want you as my Savior. At that moment when I do that, I did that when I was a teenager, but at that moment, here's what happened. Notice I still got on my coat. God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, puts it to my account, which means that at that moment, I am wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now follow this for a second. When the God of heaven now looks at me, what does he see? That's why Galatians says, you're a child, you're an heir, you're a son. Because I'm a preacher and I did a good job and I tried to do a lot of good things and clean up my coat? No. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because I put my faith and trust not in me, but in Christ. And so you know what? When I take my last breath and my heart beats for the last time and I stand before God, guess what he sees? All the good things I did? It's not important. He sees the righteousness of Christ that was put on my account. So I stand before him now clothed in his righteousness. That's what the Easter story is about. You see, if Jesus hadn't come out of that tomb, he couldn't offer this to us. He would have been like everybody else who died. But because he lives, it means that his righteousness is is available to anyone here who wants it. Now come back to us. So how do you want to stand before God? How do you want to stand before God? You see, because you only have two choices. You stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or you stand before God in your sin. It's your call. God will never force himself on you. God simply comes to you and says, I love you. I understand you can't get to heaven on your own. But I love you enough. I will take your sin upon me.
I love you enough. I will come and walk in your place. I will take your place. And I will offer it freely to anyone who wants it. But hear me. If you think for a minute that you can go through this life like this, rejecting that, and stand before God, and he say, you know what, that's okay, I'll make an exception. And you don't understand what that was all about. That was the most precious thing he could have offered and given to us. And he offers it freely to anyone who wants it. But like I said, you've got to understand the context, and you go back to Genesis. He created us with the ability to choose. And the ability to choose to accept it is also the ability to choose to reject it. That's the, that's the Easter story this morning. It's about a risen Savior. A risen Savior who offers his righteousness to anyone who will simply accept it and make it their own. So that brings us to us. What are you going to do? You see... Every one of us has to make a choice. Every one of us. And uh, he willingly offers his life for us. But we have to choose. When I choose Christ, as a teenager, I became his child. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I have the same ability that got him out of a tomb to live for him every day. That same resurrection power, that same resurrection ability allows me to live for him, to choose him every day. It's a struggle. If you don't think I still sin, then, then you don't know me. Talk to my wife. Okay, I still struggle just like everybody else, but here's the difference. I am now surrounded by the righteousness of Christ, and that's what God sees. Ephesians says it this way. I'm literally seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That's how God sees me. He sees me in Christ. So I close this morning with this. Remember, God will never force himself on you. In creation, he designed you with the ability to choose. Make no mistake. He's holy, he's just, and he's righteous. He understood that because he's holy, we couldn't make it on our own. So he provided a way. If you choose to stand before him in your own righteousness, he will cast you out. Because he's holy. And no one stands in his presence if they're not wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No one. But every one of us makes a choice. So knowingly or unknowingly, everybody sitting in here this morning has already made a choice. You've either decided you're going to be in your own righteousness or you've decided to accept Christ and and clothe yourself in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have made a choice. As long as your heart beats and as long as you have breath, you have the option to choose Christ. But the second, the second, that your life stops, there are no second chances. Your decision has been made. So for some of you this morning, it's the first time you've ever heard it. I understand. I understand. But I just want you to understand 
that when you walk out of here and you say, you know what, I get it, but I need to think about it, that you've made a decision to reject it for now. That's all I want you to understand. You've made a decision to reject it. For those of you that have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can I remind you that there's a world watching us? And if we're wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then we ought to look like it in the way we live because he's done a lot for us. For those of you that haven't made that choice, it's my prayer that you will. There are little pamphlets back there by the windows that talk about how to have peace with God, how to understand this relationship. It kind of spells out what I've talked about this morning. It's the most important decision you could ever make. For those of you that have put your faith and trust in Christ, you did make that decision. Look, let's live for him this week, all right? Let's live like we're supposed to live. Let's reflect Christ in all we say and do. Let's do it differently in the world, does it? So at this moment, what I'd like to do, if I have every head bowed, every eye closed, I do not want to leave a deal like this without giving you an opportunity to choose Christ. It's in about joining the church. I'd love to have you back, but I don't care if you ever come back or not. That's between you and God. But what I do care about is that you have chosen Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to your life. That's what I do care about. It's not hard. It's not about church. It's not about attending. It's not about money. It's not, it's not about any of that thing. Here's what it's about. It's about acknowledging that you're a sinner. So for me, it went something like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need a Savior. And as best as I know how, God, I am asking you to forgive me of my sin. I'm asking you to come into my heart. I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. Lord, I want to be your child. And as best as I know how this morning, I am putting my faith and trust in you and you alone. You can pray that prayer where you sit right now. It's about you and God. But we all either have made a choice or will make a choice before we walk out of these doors. Make sure you're ready to stand before a holy God. And I beg you not to stand there in your own own righteousness because he will cast you out. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you for a loving Savior. God, there's not a person sitting here this morning that deserved what you did for us. But God, you loved us. You came. You gave your life for us. Lord, I pray for those who have put their faith and trust in you, who are clothed in your righteousness, who are your sons, your daughters, heirs together with you, that God, you would work in their lives this week. May people see Christ in their lives. May we live the way you lived here. May we show the world a difference. And Father, for those who, maybe this is the first time they heard it, Lord, for others, they've heard it, but they really just haven't embraced it and and, and accepted it. God, would you work in their hearts as only you can. Lord, may this be the day that changes their relationship with you from the idea, Lord, of being 
an enemy of you to being a child of yours, of fighting you, Lord, to becoming one of your children. And God, may none of us, none of us, may no one here think for a moment they can stand before you and just simply have cleaned up their life. May they understand that you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to God but through Christ. Use this in our lives this day, and we thank you for your word. These things we ask in your name.